Hi, you're listening to the RVC Podcast, a ministry of River Valley Church in Fresno, California. Good morning, guys. Good to see you this morning. Uh, Super glad that you're here. Um, We are going to be in in Matthew's Gospel, Chapter 5, in our series uh, that we have been undergoing, uh, Citizens of the Kingdom. And if you need a Bible this morning, we'd love for you to be able to follow along with us. So I have some friends that are going to pass them out. If you need a Bible real quick, just lift up your hand. we got Bibles that we're going to just hand out, pass out, pass down the aisle. If you need a Bible, we want to follow along this morning. Uh, there's a taker. There we go. Anybody else? It's just permanent rent for these Bibles. So, no, we're kidding. They're just free. So if you need a Bible, raise your hand. A couple guys on the side. Uh, good morning. So glad that you guys are here this morning. Um, I want to uh, begin this morning. We're going to pray for um, one of our own, Luke uh, Mundy, who's been on staff or has uh, just up till last month on staff with me for the last decade or beyond. Uh, Luke's mom, you guys have, have known kind of the last year and a half of the journey that she's gone on. She um, uh, found out about a year and a year and a half ago, year and five months that she had leukemia. And over this last year and a half, uh, she's been fighting, battling that. Uh, and this last Friday, uh, um, Kathy went to be with Jesus. Um, Tammy and I had the privilege to go into Lemoore and hanging out with their family this last Tuesday and got a chance just to talk and laugh and uh, cry and pray with, um, with Pat, her husband, and Kathy. And, uh, and I got a text on Friday morning that Kathy's with Jesus. And I'm mindful of this verse that I saw on her Instagram uh, page that I was stalking a couple uh, weeks back. Um, she, she actually posted a, a picture of a Bible verse that she had underlined in her Bible, and it's in Philippians, and it's chapter 1, where she had underlined where Paul said, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And I thought to myself, gosh, I preached on that maybe a dozen times, maybe more, and yet that verse is so much more real to her because, you know, for her to live really was Christ. Uh, she was opening God's word and, and sharing God's word with us and um, on Tuesday, and certainly uh did that throughout her uh, time of raising her three incredible kids uh, and, uh, and in-laws, her, her daughter's uh, husband and her two sons' wives and their grandkids. And, uh, and, and on Friday, to die is gain. I thought about that. Man, I mean, we sorrow, the Bible says, but we don't sorrow like those who have no hope. Uh, and, and what a moment for her to step into eternity um, and the fact that her faith was so real, uh, not in her own effort, but in the fact that she has a faith in a perfect Savior, Jesus Christ. And, and if you can say, for to me to live is Christ, that means that your life is all about Jesus Christ. Well, then to die is actually gain. But if you have something else in that spot, to, uh, to live is success, then to die is not gain. But if Jesus is your everything, the core of who you are, and your faith is centered and fixed upon him, then to take that last breath on this planet uh, is to take your very next into God's kingdom where there's no more tears, there's no more suffering, there's no more cancer, there's no more troubles that this life uh, seems to provide for us. And so uh, we rejoice the fact that she's, you know, been in eternity now for a few days in in God's presence and reunited with uh, certainly loved ones and and people that that knew her and prayed for her. Uh, But we're also going to, as a church, stand with the Mundy family and uh, and just ask that God would bless them. And so uh, when you see them around, 
around, uh, coming around when you, uh, those of you that know Luke and Sarah well, or you know Patrick, uh, Kathy's son, and, and her daughter-in-law, uh, Brittany, who come to this church, uh, would you just embrace them and love them, and let's just stand with them as, uh, as a part of this group, as part of our, our church family. And so we're going to pray right now, and then uh, we're going to get after it in our, in our sermon today. Father, thank you for this opportunity that we have to, uh, to, to lift up to you, to care for um, our loved ones, God, our brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, the entire Monday clan. And Father, we are praying um, for them that you would continue to bless them with comfort. Lord, we know that your Holy Spirit, you go around understanding and somehow you bring comfort, you bring peace. And God, that's what we're asking you to do right now. Lord, we thank you that today uh, we didn't lose Kathy. Lord, we know exactly where she is. God, she's in your presence. Lord, she's been outfitted with a new spiritual body, God, that will not decay, that will not suffer. Lord, she is with you, God. And we can't even imagine uh, what those first moments were like as she stood before you, Lord God, and as she uh, embraced, Lord, no longer a life of faith, but now by sight. And so, Lord, uh, we rejoice with her, God, but, Father, we lift our, our brothers and sisters to you uh, in these coming days and months uh, that you would bless them and comfort them and strengthen them. And, God, would you, would you do that through human beings, Lord? Would you do that through us and, and Lord, all the rest of their friends and, and uh, family members? And we just say thank you, Jesus, for a life well lived, Lord, that we got to see up close. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We ask you to bless uh, them today. And God, would you speak to our hearts today as we get into your word this morning and learn what it means to be a citizen of your kingdom today. We love you, Lord. We just uh, thank you for our time. Would you bless us now in Jesus' name? And everybody said amen. Matthew chapter 5. The Sermon on the Mount, this is the greatest sermon that has ever been proclaimed. Jesus, we imagine through reading through the Gospels that he preached this sermon multiple times because really is about life in the kingdom of God. And, and we've been looking the last week, this is our fourth week into this series, we looked at the Beatitudes, the, the blessed state of these eight un, uh, these, these unwelcome circumstances, if you would, or, or un, you know, circumstances that you wouldn't think would be a blessed uh, reason uh, for your life or to bring happiness. But Jesus gave us these, these uh, stated beatitudes. And, and then last week we looked at how the, the citizen of the kingdom really relates to the world. Well, now we're in a new, a new section uh, where Jesus talks about the relationship that he has to the law and the prophets and really how it is that we are to relate to them. So Jesus says in verse 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now this new section that, that kind of emerges through the this, this Sermon on the Mount is really about Jesus and the law, and this idea, you know, of answering some of the questions that we might have that certainly they had, and that's why Jesus addresses it. Uh, what is Jesus' view of the law? 
That would be the, the, the writings of Moses, the first five books of our Bible. They called it the Pentateuch. Uh, and his view of the prophets, all the writings of the prophets that the Jewish people at that time based their lives upon. Uh, what's the purpose of the law? How is a person righteous? And who is truly righteous in God's kingdom? They wondered, is Jesus doing away with the law? Uh, they also wondered, is he offering a new thing, sort of a rival system to the law of Moses and the prophet's words? And when we talk about the law and the prophets, that would encompass all of the Old Testament scriptures as we see uh, referenced throughout the New Testament. So Jesus lets them know. In verse 17, he begins by letting them know, number one, that he's not come to abolish or destroy the law, but his appearing, he came to fulfill the law. Jesus came to fulfill the law. Now, even though we read in the scriptures that, uh, that when Jesus was doing a miracle on the Sabbath, they would call him out and say, you're breaking God's commands. And what Jesus did was challenge their interpretation of God's commands. And he would say, so let's say one of your oxen leaves your, you know, your little gate, like the, the, the pool guy left your gate open or something like that, when your ox gets loose. That may be the only time that has ever been combined in a statement, right? The pool, the pool guy left it and an ox escaped. But let's just say one of your donkeys falls into, or an ox or an animal falls into a ditch. And it's the Sabbath, Saturday, where Jews would, would, uh, would take a day of rest to honor God. It was a covenant between Israel and, and God. Uh, it says, would you not reach down and lift it out of that, out of that ditch or out of that pit? He said, isn't it right to do good on the Sabbath? And so he challenged their view of it. And he said, guys, God gave the Sabbath to the nation of Israel, not for God, but for human beings, for man, so that you could have a day of rest so that you didn't just keep burning uh, the candle at both ends and you could have a day to worship God. And so they, they, they were challenged by their own interpretation and Jesus sought to free it from a faulty interpretation. So how does Jesus fulfill the law and the prophets. Well, one way Jesus fulfilled it when he came is that he fulfilled it in perfect obedience. You'll hear me say, and other maybe uh, pastors or Bible teachers say, that Jesus came to live a life that nobody else could live. What we mean by that is that he lived God's law perfectly. He completely obeyed all of God's law. Everything that we read about in the Old Testament, he completely obeyed and he fulfilled it in that way. He came to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law that none of us, by the way, could fulfill. Not any Jew, not any Gentile, nobody could fulfill God's law the way Jesus actually did in perfect obedience. He also fulfilled uh, the law in this way, is that he fulfilled all the prophecies that were written about the Messiah. Everything in your Old Testament, everything that is, uh, you know, if you read or maybe you make a commitment like in the beginning of January, you're like, you know what, this year I'm going to tackle the whole Bible. And by the way, every one of us has enough time to read the entire Bible in one year. It takes 70 hours to read the entire Bible at a regular reading rate. 70 hours. The average human spends 1,500 hours in the bathroom alone every single year. I'm not even going to get to Instagram. Like, we need to go to rehab people for uh, social media addiction. You know, there's like a little thing on your iPhone that you can look at how much, if you want to know the, the bad stuff, how much you spend on your phone. Like, gosh, this battery wears out so fast. It's because you're on Instagram for four and a half hours a day. 
Just cut out scrolling and you got enough time. I, why did I bring this up? Reading the Bible is important. Let me get to it. Where are we going? Oh, here we go. The entire Bible and the Old Testament, it all points to Jesus. So you start flipping through. You're going through Genesis. You're going through Numbers. You're going through Leviticus. You're just like going, oh my, how many lambs are going to have to die until, you know what I mean? Like how many barbecues are you going to have? There's no vegans in the uh, children of Israel at that time. Every single sacrifice points to Jesus. Every single ceremony points to Jesus. Every single feast points to Jesus. John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus approach him uh, on, on, a, on a dirt road in Galilee, he says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He was making a reference of those lamb sacrifices on the day of, of um, Yom Kippur. It, it, that, that it was a day that the high priest would take a lamb and, and, and it would be sacrificed to basically cover the sins of the nation of Israel for that entire year after he confessed his own sins before God. Every single one points to Jesus. So you're reading through your Bible, just know like, man, this is about Jesus. It's telling me something about Jesus. The law and the prophets, it all points to him. You read Psalm 22, you read Isaiah 9, you read Micah 5, you read Isaiah 53, and on and on and on, hundreds of prophecies, over 300 major ones about Jesus being the Messiah, and he fulfills all of them. And the ones that are yet to be fulfilled, he will fulfill as he returns one day to not only eradicate the nation of Israel's enemies and saves the nation of Israel, but establishes the kingdom here on earth. All through the scriptures, Jesus said in Matthew 26, 56, but this all happened to fulfill the words of the prophets as recorded in the scriptures as he was being arrested and betrayed and on and on. You read through your, the gospels in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you'll read that statement. This was fulfilled because of this that was written in the scriptures. Do you know, man, Jesus came to fulfill the law, not to do away with the law. They all pointed to him. In John's gospel, chapter 5, Jesus told the Pharisees and the scribes, he said, you search the scriptures because you think that they give you eternal life. There's a lot of people that know a lot about God's word that are not saved today. There's a lot of teachers of God's word that are not saved because they think that the scriptures actually saved them. But the scriptures, Jesus says, they point to him. Yet he said, you refuse to come to me and receive this life. Jesus is the law and the prophet's fulfillment, every one of them. When Jesus rose from the dead and he, he went on that road, the Emmaus Road, and two disciples decided to leave the crime scene if they arrested and they, and they murdered our Savior, Jesus, what are they going to do to his followers? So these guys take off on this Emmaus Road and Jesus appears to them in a form. They didn't recognize him, so they're talking to him. They're like, say, hey, what are you guys talking about? Jesus says to them, they're like, uh, were you like born yesterday? We're talking about Jesus of Nazareth and all the stuff that just happened. Like he was arrested and, and, then, and then they murdered him. And besides that, it's been three days. And then we had some of our girls, you know, that can't really trust girls talking about he'd risen from the dead. So we just take off and leave. And Jesus uh, begins to explain to them about his, uh, the reason why the Messiah came. In fact, Jesus says in Luke 24, he said, you foolish people, you find it so hard to believe all that the prophets wrote in the scriptures wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering his glory? Then Jesus took them through 
the writings of Moses and all the prophets explaining from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. That's how he fulfilled the law. Everything that was promised about him, Jesus fulfilled. He also fulfilled the law in this way. When he went to the cross to die for our sins. He fulfilled it in his death for us. The law requires death when the law was broken. Jesus came to fulfill the law by dying for our disobedience. Jesus made a way for salvation that meets the requirements of the law. Isaiah 53, the prophet wrote this about the Messiah. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way. Do you know the Bible describes you and I as sheep? The dumbest animal on the planet. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to our own way. But then the prophet said, hundreds of years, centuries before Jesus arrived and died on the cross, he said, and God has laid upon him the iniquity, the sin of us all. That's what happened when Christ died. So when Jesus said, I've come to not destroy the law, but to fulfill the law, he was saying, my mission is to accomplish all that God had promised the, the, the nation of Israel and the world through the Messiah, and ultimately to give my life as a ransom. He came to fulfill it, not destroy it, nor to do away with it. Number two, we read in verse 18 and 19, that Jesus actually confirms the authority of Scripture. He says, I've not come to do away with the law. I've come to fulfill the law. And by the way, he says these things about the law. He says, for truly, that, that's like, uh, uh, like a, a, a strong, the strongest statement he can make when it says, truly, truly, I say to you. It's like, truly and amen, or your King James Version says, verily, verily, I say unto you. It's just the most strongest statement that he can make about this subject. He says, I say unto you until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus affirms the inerrancy of Scripture, that it's absolutely trustworthy. All of the Old Testament is, and including the New Testament. It's fixed. It will all be fulfilled down to the smallest detail is what Jesus was saying. An iota and a dot, it referred to the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet and then the smallest marking on the Hebrew alphabet. We might, you know, we say like, make sure you dot all your what? I's, there we go, take you to English class. Uh, and cross all your what? T's. That's literally what Jesus is saying, that the tiniest marking, uh, that little dot, or that little tiny, like, little, like, swerve on your bottom of your Y, that's what he was talking about there. He was saying that, that all of it will be fulfilled. It's unchangeable as nature itself till everything is fulfilled. Nothing will fall short. I was thinking about this this week, even this morning, contemplating that. What a promise tucked away right there in God's word for us, in that statement. God will accomplish all that he said he would do. Everything that he promised the nation of Israel. You know, a lot of people wonder, well, after Jesus came and died... You know, what is God's, you know, like, what, what's his, like, deal with the nation of Israel? Just like he said from the very beginning. None of the promises that he gave the nation of Israel, regardless if the church is now made up of Jew and Gentiles, this new entity, the church, the bride of Christ, all of his promises are still going to be accomplished. I love, do you guys ever listen to, like, a Christian radio? I don't mean, like, 
like Christian music. I mean, like uh, Bible teachers. You ever, does anyone know like J. Vernon McGee? Did you ever listen to that guy? He like died like 180 years ago, like 30, 30, 34 years ago maybe. He kind of sounds like Huckleberry Hound. I don't mean that in a disrespectful way. Just if you're ever like scrolling, park there. Great Bible teacher. And, and prior to 1948, uh, you know, everyone was talking about, oh, Jesus is going to return. Jesus is going to return. You know, everybody's talking about, you can sell a lot of books like that, by the way. I think Jesus is going to return in, well, how much do we need to make this year? Well, let's say he's going to return in 2019. That way RBC can get a building because he's probably not going to return in 2019. But prior to that, everyone's saying he's going to return. He's going to return. And, and J. Vernon McGee was one of those Bible guys that actually believed his Bible. And he said, uh, well, guess what? He's not going to return in this particular year, 1946 or whatever, because there has to be a temple built in Israel, which it hadn't, and Israel hadn't returned back to their land. Uh, and uh, because the, the Antichrist has to go into the temple and declare himself to be God, this is like, like you're, going, you're going off topic, Gordon, but it's okay. I'm the one with the microphone right now. I'm just trying to help us understand that God's word will be fulfilled. He says, and Jesus can't return until that all starts happening. And it was like, you're nuts, and you sound like a cartoon character. And all of a sudden, 1948 happens, like, oh, lo and behold, God's promise is starting to show up again for the nation of Israel. And people say, oh, you can never see them building a temple. Could you ever see a God becoming a man and living a perfect life and dying on the cross and rising from the dead? You know, if you believe the first few, few words of the Bible, everything is possible. In the beginning, God. Mic drop, right? <laughs> everything is possible. Are we good to move on right there? My best friend said, when you strike oil, quit drilling. I just want to make sure. All of his promises. How about to you? What are the promises he's made to you as a follower of Christ? I love this verse in Philippians 1. It says, and I am certain that God who began the good work within you will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. Are you a work in progress this morning? And you feel like that God might get sort of like bored with you, his project, because you're just not getting it? You just go like, man, God's one of these days is going to say, you know what? I'm done, dude. I'm moving on to a new project. God will continue the work that he began in you. The day that you responded to him by faith, he began a work, and he's going to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. He's never going to abandon you, my friend. He's going to continue to work in your life, and he's going to use the struggles and the difficulties that you face right now to actually cause you to emerge into the person that God sees you becoming. Amen? His promises never fail. I love the song that we just uh, sang just a few moments ago. So what about the citizens of the kingdom? What's our relationship to the law? In verse 19, Jesus lets us know the Old Testament is an expression of God's will and desire for us. Now, our relationship to the law is that we're to obey God's law and his word. Uh, not the ceremonial laws, not clearly the sacrificial laws that pertain to the nation of Israel. Christ is already the fulfillment of those. But we see in God's word in the New Testament and the Old Testament, there are, are um characteristics that God wants you to take on your life, things that he wants to do in my life. In fact, nine out of the ten commandments are reiterated in the New Testament, uh, lacking the Sabbath because that was a relationship, a special covenant relationship between the nation of Israel. 
And so, you know, there's a lot of Christians that say like, oh, you got to keep the Sabbath and honor God. Like, well, guess what? You're breaking it. Today's Sunday. Thank you. Uh, The Sabbath is actually Saturday. But there are things in God's word that you and I are to obey. Not from a standpoint of, um, I want to gain God's favor. That's impossible. The purpose of the law is to drive you and I to Jesus. But then once we are with Jesus and we find salvation in a Savior, it directs us in how to live our life, right? Would you all agree that, that it's probably a, a Christian thing to not murder somebody, right? Would you also agree that probably God doesn't want hate to reside in our hearts? You read things like, let all bitterness and wrath be put away from your life. That's a command in the New Testament. Can you help me out right now? Who has a better life because they have bitterness and wrath in their life? Anyone? Let's talk to the spouse of that person who has bitterness and wrath. Let's talk to the kids. Let's talk to the coworkers. You know what I love about John? Is that he's so bitter and he's so wrathful. Hey, did you get this thing done? No. Okay, there he is. Like He's got that David Banner look in his eye. You know what I mean? He's going to start turning green and his clothes are going to rip off. I was referring to the Hulk, just in case you're wondering. This is like nothing, not that kind of workplace environment. The law reveals to us our need. Lord, I have failed. In fact, when we get into, next week, by the way, bring your moms. We're not talking about the next verse in Matthew, which deals with murder, lust, and anger, okay? <laughs> like, happy Mother's Day, everyone. Who struggles with lust and murder, huh? Can I get an amen? <laughs> next week, we're going to talk about moms. In fact, we're going to have Solomon's moms going to instruct us from God's word. So it's going to be safe and tame and it's going to be butterflies and daisies. You're going to love it, okay? Then the next week we're going to get after it where it's not just the letter of the law, but it's the intent of the law. You have heard it said, Jesus will say. So everyone's like, you know what? I'm going to actually try to be righteous on my own. And Jesus says, well, the law says no murder, but I'm I'm going to unpack that for you a little bit. Let's start talking about the heart stuff. The law says, hey, don't commit adultery. And Pharisees are walking around like, I haven't committed adultery this week. I'm doing good. And so Jesus is going to go, but I say unto you, if you've had lustful thought in your heart towards another person, you've already committed adultery. The law points out our need for a Savior, but then it directs us. These are the things now through the power of the Holy Spirit that will begin to emerge in your life and my life. I need a Savior. I love what uh, Pastor David Gusick said about this. He said, the law sends us to Jesus to be justified because it shows us our inability to please God in ourselves. But after we come to Jesus, he sends us back to the law to learn the heart of God for our conduct and our sanctification. In fact, every, every law, every, everything in God's word that commands do this or avoid that, all of it can be summed up in the two great commandments. Somebody went to try to, like, you know, trick Jesus and get him to say something he shouldn't. And, and, and Jesus, you know, like, what's the greatest command? And so Jesus reiterated these words. He says, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commands. Our salvation is based on Jesus fulfilling these commands for us, fulfilling the law for us. But the way we begin to live our lives as new followers of Jesus would be uh, based on these two commands, to love God with everything that we have, 
to avoid things like anger and wrath and bitterness in our hearts because we want to love God with all of our hearts. And then you look at the way you and I treat other human beings. If we would love our neighbors ourselves, we would never do our neighbor wrong. That's why Paul said in Romans 13, 8, that love is the fulfillment of all the law. So that's your relationship to the law. It doesn't save you, but it directs you. The Sermon on the Mount does the same thing. Every command in Scripture, by the way, it falls into one of these great commandments. To love God with everything, to love our neighbors ourselves. And then verse 20, he says this about the relationship of the law. He says, he says, guys, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. I think that was a mic drop kind of moment because it would have blown their minds. Because the, the disciples and everybody that heard that statement, they would have thought, um, how can I be more righteous than them? There was, a, there was a, a, a saying that went around during that time that said if, if if only two people could make it to heaven, it would be a scribe and it would be a Pharisee. A scribe was one who, um, who wrote commentary about God's word in the law. He studied it, he interpreted it, and he commented endlessly on it. A Pharisee literally means separated one. A Pharisee is one that says, I'm going to separate my life and live such a holy life that every detail of the law, and when I don't like it, I'm going to get a different tradition about that particular law, and I'm going to follow it. And everyone just said, man, they're so holy. The way they would pray. And Jesus will get after them in chapter 6. It's awesome. He says, hey, listen, don't go and pray like out in the corners like the Pharisees. Like, oh, God. You know what I mean? You just listen to people pray and go, do you really pray like that on your own? Or is it just like to let everyone know like, man, listen how holy they are on the, on the corner of Blackstone and Herndon. is basically where Jesus refers to. Uh, Actually, in Jerusalem, there's a black stone in Herndon. And he's like, they go on the corner like, oh, God. And everyone's like going, oh, wow, they're so holy. I can't, I can't even be around them. They're so holy. It was an external keeping of the law. Lord, I avoided this, God. And Lord, I haven't done that. And Lord, I've done this. To hear a statement like that would have been mind-blowing to the disciples and everyone who would listen. To us, it's kind of like they're foolish people. You know, they come up to Jesus like, hey, Jesus. And you're just like going, dude, this is going to go bad. Matthew already told me this story. It went bad for him. So don't do it again. There he goes. Mark reiterates the same dumb Pharisee. But everybody saw them as the holiest people that were to live. They were the elite spiritual giants. And if they can't get in the kingdom of heaven, then what hope do I have? So what was Jesus talking about there? There was so much pride that the Pharisees had, by the way. Jesus told us the story about them in the Gospel of Luke. Two men went in to pray, a Pharisee and a tax collector, a sinner. The Pharisee's like, Lord, thank you that I'm not like other people, extortioners and adulterers and, and like that fellow over there, the tax collector. The tax collector, meanwhile, is having a different conversation with God. It says he couldn't even look up into the sky. He didn't even look upwards. He looked downwards and he beat his chest and says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You see, that is the kind of attitude that God is after, that humility. Jesus uh, said yuck to the religion of the Pharisees. Another place he calls them out and says, you're like a whitewashed tomb, all beautiful on the outside, but inside you're full of dead men's bones. In Matthew 23, you could read it, he gives them seven woes. Woe to you, Pharisees and scribes. He says, what sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law, and you Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you're so careful to clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you're filthy, full of greed and self-indulgence. Everybody's impressed 
but not God. Isaiah 64 gives us a little uh, hint of that, saying that your righteous deeds are like, like filthy rags in his sight. And happy, Jesus said in verse 3 of chapter 5, is the one who realizes that. You know, today if you're sitting here and you recognize you're like that tax collector, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Well, that's the best spot that you could be in. God, I recognize that I'm a sinner and that I can't keep your law and I've broken your law. What options do I have? A perfect Savior? A Savior that loves you and willingly offered his life in exchange for your sins? He took them upon himself as if he had committed the very sins that would condemn you to hell, me to hell, and every other human in this world to hell for eternity. And Jesus absorbed that wrath of God as he fulfilled all the law and the prophets. We need a better righteousness, a greater righteousness. Paul talks about two righteousness, two righteousnesses, if that's a statement to say. In Philippians chapter 3, where he talked about his old way that he used to live. And he kept the law uh, to the T, to the crossing of the T, to the dotting of the I, until he was confronted with Jesus. And that's where he recognized that he himself, though compared to other human beings, was doing a lot better. But compared to a perfect Savior, he had broken God's laws and he needed a different kind of righteousness. He says, I'll count it all as loss and I'll count it as dung. I'll count it as a pile of manure to get a righteousness that comes by faith. We can never be made right with God by trying to keep the law. Paul tells us this in Romans 10, for they don't understand God's way of making people right with himself. Refusing to accept God's way, they cling to their own way of getting right with God by trying to keep the law. For Christ has already accomplished the purpose for which the law was given. As a result, all who believe in him are made right with God. Jesus brought us into a new relationship with God, which involves our faith as a basis for our righteousness. That's so important, by the way, for you as a Christian to preach the gospel to yourself so that you might understand that you stand today uh, with a righteousness that God sees, not because you're good, not because you try to keep the law, not because you're even actually trying to improve your life, but because you've put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. One of the next steps this week for you it would be to, I'm going to meditate upon this passage in Romans chapter 3 that we're going to read in a second. You know why this is so important? Because it's easy to fall into the trap of Phariseeism. Well, I'm a Christian now. I won't do this. I won't do that. You start to feel righteous. Every generation of Christianity has like a new thing to avoid or a new thing to do. Some of your grandparents grew up, maybe you grew up in a, ch a church environment that says, hey, don't dance. Tammy and I didn't dance. We didn't have a first dance at our wedding. She was so angry with me at our wedding. She's like, I refuse. No, we didn't have dancing. Why didn't we have dancing at our wedding? Because we're real Christians, guys. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to have a big old one, one of these. We're going to have a, a, what do you call it, a renewing of our vows. Not that we've broken them, but we're going to dance, right? Hey, don't be playing cards. Don't have long hair. Jeremiah can't get into the kingdom of heaven with all that long hair. You can't listen to secular music. And the list goes on and on. But there's no inward change. My fear is that we're raising a group of kids and we're telling them all these things are not to do. And guess what? They're going to act like a Christian, but there's no heart going on inside. Oh, look at him. They're such a good little Christian boy. Go listen to their music. I don't know if rap music, even if it's a Christian guy, is really Christian, is it? It is. Don't be afraid of it. There's no true righteousness when it's just external. Thousands sit in churches, by the way, thinking that they're okay with God today. 
because they have a self-made righteousness. And that's a righteousness that is going to fall flat when they stand before God. So we need to have a different righteousness, a better righteousness, not in degree of how you keep the law, but in kind. You get a righteousness that's by faith in Jesus Christ, and that's what Jesus is making uh, everybody understand. When you read the law, you realize you failed, and it says, I need to have a Savior. That's a good spot to be. Now I get a righteousness that comes by faith, not by my effort. If you're trying to get to heaven on your own effort, good luck, because God's standard is perfection. You need a true righteousness, the one that God accepts. It's a perfect one that gets imputed to you by your simple faith in Jesus. It's a righteousness, by the way, that works from the inside out. We don't start putting on Christian clothing and, and stickers on our car and listening to Christian music, and all of a sudden it starts changing from the outside in. That's religion. Christianity speaks of a righteousness that comes by faith, and then it begins to work itself out. And then we don't have conversations like, well, Lord, I haven't murdered anybody this week. And the Lord's like, I want to deal with that bitterness in your heart. At the heart level is what, is what Jesus is after, and that's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. Now our walk with Jesus, by the way, is, God, I see your word, and I want it to be lived out, but I need your power to do that. God, I need your grace to cover my sin when I fail and I don't live up to the high standard of the Sermon on the Mount. And a relationship with God is based on love, not fear. We have a loving relationship with God, not a legal one. He's given us a righteousness that's greater, and it came to us by faith, not by trying to keep a list of rules. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 3. This is that, 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 that meditative verse I want you to think on this week. And sort of tuck away in your hearts. Paul says this, For no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. But now God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law. As was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago, we are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. This week, my friends, I want to challenge you to read through Romans chapter 3, verse 21 and 20 through 22. And preach the gospel to yourself. You just take those, you know, each day, read through that passage. Each day, say, God, I want you to make this, what, what I am understanding up in my head, I want to make sure that it's something that I actually grasp in my heart. It's the reason why we want you to take a next step, next step today and to say, hey, Gordon and RBC, I'm going to be meditating on this verse this week. I'm going to tuck it away in my heart so you put a stake in the ground saying, I'm going to actually believe that I have a better righteousness than the scribes and the Pharisees because it's not my effort. It's my faith in a perfect Savior, by the way, who fulfilled the law. He's fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law on your behalf, my behalf, and for everyone who believes. I love what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake, he made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You know, today, I rejoice in that truth. I want you to take some moments this morning as we, as we continue to worship through singing God, I just rejoice today as I read through that passage. I read through the Sermon on the Mount. God, these lofty standards that I cannot attain to, though I see you want them to emerge in my life. Lord, today I recognize that, man, I, I have a righteousness that's been given to me by faith. By faith. And Lord, I want to live out that new life that you're calling me to by that same faith in the Son of God.
and the spirit that he's given you to empower you and I to actually live out all these different characteristics that ought to be a part of our life. We seek to live out as citizens of the kingdom from salvation, not for it. It's important to grasp. So this morning, rejoice. If you've believed, you have a righteousness that exceeds theirs, and it's a true one, and you want to own that and believe that and preach that truth to yourself so that you don't fall into that same rut of being a Pharisee, thinking all these little things not only are saving you, but are keeping you saved. If you're seeking to establish a righteousness before God that's based on your efforts today, maybe you think today, oh man, I'm living a good life, and gee, I try to live by the Ten Commandments, and I try to live by the Sermon on the Mount. Read it, and you'll wake up, and you'll recognize that you are basing your eternity, your eternal security based on a false righteousness that is based on your efforts. No matter good you can do, no matter how much church you can attend, or how many Christian concerts you can go to, would ever take away your sin, take away my sin. You need a righteousness that is true. So what do you do? You recognize your spiritual poverty. You recognize that you've sinned, that you need a savior and you can't save yourself. And today you can say, God, I want to have that righteousness that is greater than even the most spiritual elite ones 2,000 years ago that were listening to that Sermon on the Mount. This morning, would you pray with me? Would you bow your heads? Father, thank you today for your grace and your mercy, Lord, and thank you for giving us this incredible, uh, Lord, sermon to reread and to look over and to study, God, and to allow it to get into our hearts. And Father, I want to say thank you today. The Lord, we have an understanding that the righteousness that you said that needed to be greater isn't something that we produce, God. It's something that you did for us. And all that we have done is simply believed in you. And so, Lord, my brothers and my sisters here today that, that God, are, are, are kind of looking back over the week and wondering where they stand with you today. God, did they do enough good things, Lord? Did they, did they live a life that was worthy to be loved by you? Lord, your word tells us that none of us could ever do that before you accepted us in your kingdom. And certainly there's nothing we can do to keep us in your kingdom. It's by faith. It is by faith. Faith in Jesus Christ alone equals salvation. And we say thank you for that. God, I also pray for those who are here today. That God, there might be one person this morning who, who needs to know that truth. They need their sins forgiven. God, they've been trying to build a righteousness that is going to fall flat because it's based upon their efforts. And your word says that by the keeping of the law, no one will be saved. It's through your law that we realize we're a sinner. And Lord, this morning, you might be revealing that to some of my friends. This morning, I pray that you would open their hearts and open their eyes to see their need for you. Lord, some are ready to, to realize they're a sinner, God. Some are ready to repent of their sin, to turn from it. God, some are ready this morning to believe in you and, and, and invite you to be their Lord and Savior. Would you, would you bless their hearts right now, God? to grab a hold of this gift of eternal life that you willingly offered them. With heads bowed and eyes closed, if, if you're here this morning and you would say, hey, Gordon, would you pray for me? Today, I'm ready to receive Jesus. I want my sins forgiven. I want to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that when I die, I will spend eternity in heaven based on having a righteousness that Jesus provides. If that's you this morning, would you lift your hand up, hold it up in place, and we're going to talk to God together right where you're sitting or standing. And, we're, and, and you can tell God today what you want him to do in your life. If that's you this morning, 
You want Jesus in your life. You want your sins forgiven. You want to begin a relationship with him today. You lift your hand. Let me pray for you today. Anybody here this morning, you're ready to respond to the Lord. You want to give your life to him. God bless you, man. Man, he loves you. Maybe you wandered off from the path that you know God wants you to be on, but today you want to come back to him. You lift your hand up as well. Let's pray together. Today, come back to him. If that's you, you lift your hand up. Anybody else? Anybody else? Man, people around you are praying for you. This is the greatest decision that you will ever make in your life. Do not leave this moment without surrendering your heart to him. If that's you, you lift your hand. Let me pray for you as well. Anybody here today? Well, listen, for those of you that want Jesus in your life, I'm going to pray a prayer. You pray something like this after me. The Bible says that Christ is going to come into your life and make you his today. You pray after me now. Dear Lord Jesus, Lord, today I recognize that I'm a sinner. And Lord, today I ask for your forgiveness. Lord, I believe that you died for my sins and that you rose from the dead. Lord, today I trust you and I follow you as my Lord and Savior. Guide my life, Lord, and help me to do your will. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen. Listen, for those of you that just prayed that prayer with us, you know, we want to just say welcome to God's family, man. It's awesome. You know, at the close of the service, which is going to be after our singing, uh, there's a spot on that connection card, next step for you to take. Jot it down. Today I prayed invited Jesus to be my Savior. Let us know that so we can get you some information that will help you grow as a Christian. Let the rest of us, let's all stand this morning as we close out in song. And, uh, and I've got some friends on each side of the room today that we'd love to pray for you, not only during this last song, but after the service is over, if you want to just hang around and you need some prayer, you make sure that you go over to those areas and receive some prayer this morning. God bless you. Let's sing.